0: Welcome to a new episode of the MisoTV Podcast. Today we sit down for a conversation with Dr. Rafael Bueno of the Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. We discuss with him the surgical approach to mesothelioma and how genetics impact treatment. MisoTV is a video program adapted to audio only for this podcast, produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization. The Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation provides patient support and education services, funds peer-reviewed research, and advocates for increased funding of mesothelioma research. This 2021 season of programming is made possible with the support of our generous sponsors. They are MRHFM, Bellican Fox, Bristol Myers Squibb, Novocure Merck, the Goree Law Firm, and early Lucarelli, Sweeney and Misenkothen.
1: Good afternoon, Dr. Bueno. Uh, Thank you so much for being willing to join us in our latest episode of TV.
2: Thank you, Mary. Always a pleasure and good to see you doing so well.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, we're very interested in hearing a little bit more about the International Mesothelioma Program um, at the Brigham. I know you've been leading this program for quite some time and Perhaps you could take us through a little bit about the program itself and then we can get into some of the pressing uh, issues in surgery. Oh,
2: absolutely, I appreciate it, thank you. So the program has been around for 19 years now. Uh, David Sugarbreaker started uh, uh, for us um, and that was based on the large number of patients uh, with mesothelioma around uh, the Boston and Massachusetts and New England area because we have so many ports and at the time uh, that it started, uh, the understanding of mesothelioma and how to deal with it, that was in the late 80s and the early 90s. And um, we had uh, Carol, uh, Karen Antman, who was an oncologist, Dana Farber at the time, she was interested in mesothelioma. And David Sugarbaker, who was a surgeon who was interested in mesothelioma. And, it, it, and most people didn't know what to do with mesothelioma the patients, they didn't have really have anything to offer. Uh, and it's a challenging disease, so they sent them all to us, and 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 we basically over the years, David uh, and others in the group uh, took an operation that was previously reported and made it uh, practical and relatively safe in big centers. And, um, we started collecting tumor specimens, and we started learning about additional therapies like intrapleural chemotherapy and other treatments. And we started understanding more about the disease, the natural history of disease and what happens with it. it, it and, and, and we got a lot of other people involved, and it, it was more than one individual's practice. It was a team of surgeons, oncologists, radiation oncologists, pulmonologists, radiologists, uh, pathologists. Uh, Uh, critical care doctors and anesthesiologists. So things work much better as a team as opposed to a one-off, where there's only one person and and that's not the same. Um, And I
1: saw as your program grew, you also included, um, you know, people from the uh, field of spiritual counseling and physical therapy and social work. And, you know, you really now not only focus, I guess, on the disease, but on the person and on the impact surgery as well as the disease has on that patient?
2: No, absolutely. Uh, so so I was talking about the treatment part. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other part is the uh, support part for the family and and, and the patients. And we had, we've been very lucky with philanthropists who uh, donated money for a house that we have across the street from the hospital where people can come to be evaluated, to get treatment surgery or other things and the family can wait around. Uh, and that just makes it possible for a lot of people who don't have sufficient funds to do that and then the other part was the research we did a lot of we did a lot of focused research over the years and, uh, and in fact we this led to uh, the most impactful work was the genomic comprehensive genomic analysis mrma that we pu- published in nature genetics in 2016 and has since been validated and expanded upon so, dr.
1: Bueno could I stop you and could you explain what genomic medicine is
2: yeah absolutely so 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 cancer is often associated with alterations in our chromosomes and our DNA which makes the chromosomes and the tumor has by virtue of being a tumor has much altered uh, DNA sequences and we're talking about mutations and uh Every tumor has kind of a fingerprint. Uh, tumor is not different. It has certain anticipated mutations plus additional less common mutation in an individual. And that lets us better understand the tumor, but more importantly, potentially identify ways we can attack the tumor by understanding its vulnerabilities. And in different cancers, there are different ways to do that. And, you know, before you plan the attack, before you fix the problem, you have to understand the problem. And the Mm -hmm. genomic uh, and the genetics help you start fixing the problem. Um, I hope that's-
1: Thank you. Yeah, that sort of explains that there's this whole landscape that's taking place behind the scenes, behind a tumor to understand you know, why that particular tumor behaves the way it does, how it is, you know, how it initiates and how it continues to grow or how it is stopped. So um, I know that, you know, you've had a lot of, uh, you've done a lot of research on that. And I know we've collaborated and we've funded some of that research and, you know, really proud of the relationship that we've developed over the years with your uh, program. Sure. So Dr. Bueno, I guess um, I have a question now that, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about surgery. Um and if you tell us maybe a little bit about how it has evolved over the years because i know um, you know many many years ago um, the gold standard was the extra pleural pneumonectomy and you know i believe that things have changed since then so i'd like to hear a little bit maybe about your thinking and also you know how this has all evolved to where we are today
2: thanks uh, no that's that's a good point everything evolves in life uh, extra pleural luminectomy was a drastic operation, but it gave the surgeon the satisfaction of knowing that everything was removed Uh, and uh, it works fine. In fact, our longest survivor just texted me three months ago, 25 years and counting.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, But uh, there were some concerns with that surgery on a couple of fronts. And early on, I figured out that uh, as did others, but when I looked at our pneumonectomy data, we had some patients doing remarkably well, but I found that if you, and and this is where it started to, in my mind, Mm -hmm. erode a little bit. Uh, I looked at uh, certain age groups and I found that if someone is over 70 or 75, I can't remember the time, that extraplural monectomy was an independent mortality mm-hmm. in terms of outcome, independent of everything else.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that made me pause. And it made me concern, could consider other options. And at the time, others in Memorial and elsewhere started, doing, we're looking at pleurectomies in other ways. And so gradually, we identified groups of patients who we can uh, save the lungs in. Mm-hmm. Just, I'll take a pause here and say, look, this is the way every cancer has been treated in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. My mom was an OR nurse. She's 88 now. God bless her. And 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 when she was working as an OR nurse in thoracic, by the way, but other things too. If someone had a breast cancer, they would have radical mastectomy, mm-hmm. uh, and that was between 1896 and the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And then in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, we moved to modified radical mastectomies. And then in the 80s and the 90s, we moved to lumpectomies. Mm-hmm. And with the various treatment modalities, the other modalities joining up, the, 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 the risk to the patients and the adverse event of losing an organ, here it's mm-hmm. the breast, but the same thing happened with lung cancer. pneumonectomies, lobectomies, segmentectomies. So, so it's a natural course to to find the disease and to find the process with the biggest operation, and then realize that you have something to compare with, and to go down to something that's safer to remove some uh, causes. And you know, frankly, we recent we published our EPP data in mm-hmm. 2014,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and we just a couple of months ago published our pleurectomy data,
3: mm-hmm. and in
2: fact. The plurectomy data are as good if not better than the pneumonectomy data. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And these are not small series. This is hundreds and hundreds of patients. This is over 300 patients in each group. So that made me comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we find that an ex is a complete operation. The plurectomy has to be a complete operation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that takes a long time to get every morsel of tumor out and then clean it out and make it better. And, and, and you know, we're, it's harder to standardize that operation, but I think it needs to be standardized.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, our data clearly shows that in the people that we could resect the whole tumor in a pleurectomy, they did way better than the people who had a partial pleurectomy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to get there, you need to have large numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right now what we do is we do a radical pleurectomy in the cortication. And we usually, not always, but usually take the diaphragm. I found that I can usually preserve the pericardium. Uh, the diaphragm is a little tougher because usually the tumor is most preponderant in the diaphragm and it's invaded. Uh, but we're able to do pleurectomy on essentially everybody. I would say in the last two years, I didn't do an extra plorectomy. In the last seven years, I've did maybe three or four. And they, they were usually in younger, well, the people I did it on are younger women with a very large tumor on the left side.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, uh, and they did really well. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a subset of patients that benefits from, and I'm talking about tumor that weighs six pounds. Mm-hmm. But generally with smaller tumors, we can do an, a pleurectomy with no problems. That's never an issue. I've never, in the last five years, I've, I don't recall having to convert from pleuractomy to pneumonectomy.
1: Which is wonderful. And, you know, something that struck me years ago that um, a surgeon had said was that, you know, it wasn't the failure of the surgery to remove all the, all the disease, but it was the failure of the chemotherapy at that time to keep it from coming back. And when we go back to the old series, you know, when you talk about the, you know, 80s, 90s, we didn't have standard chemotherapy. We didn't really have agents that had any effect on mesothelioma. So, you know, today, you know, good surgery coupled with these advances, certainly we should be starting to see some, you know, real long-term survivors and, you know, many patients hitting that 20, 25-year mark, I hope. No, no, I'm very optimistic. So mm-hmm.
2: so the other thing that we did is we looked at, at where do people recur when they recur? And a lot of it is local. And uh, so the problem that I see is physicians not using correct terminology. So if someone has breast cancer and they have a resection and they have a little residual cancer and it grows back, and that, by the way, it happens 33% of the time with Mm -hmm. lumpectomy, then you don't call it metastatic disease because the word metastatic disease scares people who now can read their report online. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I'm trying to teach the world and, the, and my radiologist that if there is a local recurrence in the chest and everything else is okay, it's a local recurrence and you should manage it locally as opposed mm-hmm. to disseminate this type of disease. So we're, what is it? Words are important. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the one thing. But, but we saw a lot of early local recurrence and that's why we gradually added uh, intrapleural chemotherapy not because it's chemotherapy, but because the drug kills cancer cells and if 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 vodka killed cancer cell, I put vodka if I showed <laughs> up. it's not about getting it to the bloodstream, it's about killing cells because the fundamental problem is that the pleura is intertwined and surrounds the whole chest on the right on the side and it's sometimes you can't see microscopic cells that escape and then and then you are uh, then it grows back,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and, and and you can't go back surgically because everything's stuck. So uh, two things on that. So so we for that added a, a regimen, a, a very strict regimen, which we increased on where We uh, wash everything, so we trim everything on the lung. If there's stuff on the lung that's remaining, we trim it. If we can't get it off, we are argon coagulated, and we show in a paper that we can burn it a couple of millimeters deep, and that takes care of it. Uh, We also really carefully rinse the chest cavity with a variety of fluids, water, saline, uh, peroxide, and and really give it a good cleaning. And then uh, the other thing we do is uh, we use the argon to paint the chest wall to potentially burn the outer layer. So if there are any cells around, uh, uh, they're gone. And then for the few additional cells that might be left, uh, we fill the cavity with cisplatin at a certain safe dose
3: mm-hmm. in people
2: who have good renal function. And then uh, we leave it there for an hour mm-hmm. just with the hope to kill anything residual. Mm-hmm. And that seems so. So, in the paper I referred to that we published this past year, looking at 350 pleurectomies, having heated intrapleural chemotherapy was significantly affected survival in a very significant way compared to the people who didn't have it. So, so I, I think that's important. I don't think it hurts anybody. I, in the doses that we give and the protection that we have, I haven't seen problems in a decade. Uh, so that's what we do. Now, we also have developed strategies how to deal with uh, recurrences. Because local recurrences, we can deal with uh, precutaneous ablation and, and and burn it, like one would burn a wart. We can give localized radiation. We can do a resection. And both our group and the Zurich group showed that if it, if if a recurrence happens locally a couple of years later, and you take it out, you know, it, your survival is still good going forward. And speaking of survival, uh, I had an idea two years ago, and that we presented it. I asked all, uh, like, eight centers to identify all patients that they had who survived longer than five years—not statistically, but really—and that's what we presented. And, and we had 134 or 136 patients who lived longer than five years, and all group had like 270 something. So, so we are seeing an impact from aggressive local therapy, but mm-hmm. it needs to be good. It needs to be precise. The operation needs to be good. And I would argue that there are a few centers here and in the rest of the world, in the United States and the rest of the world, that can do it, but not every Tom, Dick, Harry, and Harriet.
1: Exactly. There's something to be said for an experienced center, an experienced surgeon. Um, You know, no doubt about it. This is not, you know, this is not an operation that, uh, this operation relies on expertise um, and really, you know, the knowledge behind the disease as well. So, you know, I encourage all patients um, really to, to, if they're not at an expert center, to go get that second opinion because, you know, sometimes surgery is not in their favor and they may have surgery by an inexperienced surgeon. And sometimes they're they're turned away for surgery, whereas a more experienced surgeon uh, certainly could tackle it. So, I'm wondering, you know, when you talk about the data and you know we're starting to see longer-term survivors, um, and I know you analyze things right down to that little drop. Um, is there an impact now, and are you seeing a younger cohort of patients than what you had seen in the past? And does that affect, you know, some of the decisions we make, or would you say that you're still seeing, you know, the average age of a mesothelioma patient around 70 to 75?
2: Well, uh, yes to both.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but think about it. There's two humps on the curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 I think we're seeing uh, the older population, mm-hmm.
3: uh,
2: but we're also seeing people in their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, mm-hmm. 50s, uh, and 60s with mm-hmm. mesothelioma, and many have as best exposures that they know about. Mm-hmm. And some must have asbestos exposure. They don't know about, And some have radiation. Some okay. of the younger people had radiation for, let's say, lymphomas and other things. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I think that there is asbestos in the environment. that We're just mm-hmm. not
3: aware of.
1: Yeah, I to, no, I no, posed that question to Karen Atman, you know, a number of years ago, who, you know, you had mentioned earlier, and, you know, Karen said to me that when she went through, when they were first formulating their first trial at the Brigham, they went through all the data sets at the Brigham, and she had many young patients in those early sets. Um, so she didn't feel it was as new a phenomena, but probably, you know, a better, di- you know, better way of bringing people to diagnosis, uh, plus the internet, you know, uh, being able to get the word out and having patients seen at these expert centers. Uh, and that's perhaps why we, you know, are seeing, you know, some of these younger patients in addition to all the secondhand exposure. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. I, I agree. I mean, I think we, see, and, and, and despite the, the message that the incidence is going down, mm-hmm. I don't think it is.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
2: I saw my first patient f- who was in New York city in September 11th,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, 2001. It's like, he didn't have any other risk factors, but, Oh, yes, there was a, it was on downtown Manhattan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yes, there was dust. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So uh, I think that we have exposures that we're not thinking. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. after all, I mean, when did they close the Quebec uh, asbestos mine? This was in the last decade. Right. Mm -hmm. So, So it's, unfortunately, it's still around us. Unfortunately, it's. Omnipresent, so
0: we Right, to- and
1: when we talk about not knowing, um, you know, how many fibers it takes to develop a mesothelioma, when we think about, you know, even the old water systems, you know, the pipes are lined, many of the old pipes were lined with asbestos that, you know, remain in cities today. So, as you said, I mean, you know, exposure is everywhere. We're all exposed to asbestos, but only a certain subset seem to, you know, have whatever it takes to develop this disease.
2: And that's a good point. I'm not an epidemiologist, so I, mm-hmm. uh, I I can infer from what I see, but that's about it. but mm-hmm. but i we do see younger people and we see older people. so we see the whole gamut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, basically, uh, I agree with you. I think I think most ca- as mesothelioma is the best documented uh, type of cancer that's known to be caused by An environmental agent. So, uh, uh, you know, something's causing it. I don't. I don't. I think background mesothelioma is a misnomer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And usually, you need some genetic predisposition, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and you need um, exposure, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and you need bad luck, Mm -hmm. because. As I tell my patients, if everybody live to 500 years, we'll all get something
3: mm-hmm. with
2: cancer. But but having the predisposition and the exposure and the bad luck is how mm-hmm. people get all kinds of diseases, but particularly uh, uh, environmentally caused diseases. Right, and I
1: think you know we we you know have discovered some genes that lead people to be more predisposed to developing mesothelioma, but you know, again, this is early in the field, and I presume that as time goes on, we're going to find more more genes uh, that make people uh, you know more susceptible to asbestos exposure and uh, developing mesothelioma. So um I'd like to take a little bit of a turn now and talk to you a little bit about uh, some of the new trials that I've been seeing and some of the work that you've done uh, looking at uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, um, which is sur- which is chemotherapy prior to uh, surgery. So, Could you talk to us a little bit about your interest in in that area?
2: So, so let me do two things.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, There are two types of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, Mm -hmm. The standard uh, chemotherapy Mm -hmm. is is a problem in most cases, in my view, to be neoadjuvant because we know that cisplatin and Olymta, with or without uh, bevacizamide, is only effective in 30 to 50% of the patients. And and what actually been published in several trials is that if everybody is pre-treatment candidate for uh, surgery after chemotherapy, then uh, the chemotherapy is only effective 33 to 50% of the time then what people have seen is that there's a whole bunch of people who went on chemotherapy in a neoadjuvant trial and progressed, and they were not eligible for surgery. So until we have a really good test to figure out who's going to do well with chemotherapy, my way of treating patients uh, has been to stage them very, very carefully. Mm-hmm. And if they have localized disease that's not invading anything and in negative lymph nodes and they won't, and they're fit and they wanna have surgery, I do surgery first, followed by chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. If they have some localized disease or localized po- positive lymph nodes, then I treat them with neoadjuvant chemotherapy because surgery for those patients is not gonna help them. Mm-hmm. And those patients who respond, then they do well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that's how I do that. Now, in mm-hmm. terms of trials, uh, we, we still have to finish the manuscript, but we've done, one of the first uh window of opportunity trial and and mm-hmm. that's taking a promising drug and and doing basically a phase two trial and basically we did it a couple of weeks of of the fact in it i don't think that's a secret that's on
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh we presented it and and published it uh in an abstract form and presented it so so we did the fact in it because it was uh, a promising drug mm-hmm. cell line and we got a biopsy before we get treatment for two to four weeks in in several arms. And then we did surgery and a, we showed that we could do this kind of stuff and and we can get a biopsy before and after and learn about it. And B, uh, we actually had a couple of amazing responses. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And one patient, which sticks in my mind had pleomorphic mesothelioma, which is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, we did the the treatment, he had a good response, we took the tumor out, he didn't want to get chemotherapy after surgery. And that was six years ago, and he's still fine. Mm -hmm. So something happened Mm -hmm. to that patient, and there are a couple of other patients like that. And it turns out that it seems that that drug impacts the immune response. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And I think that that that's how it worked. And I still... You know, there are too many papers and it's mm-hmm. one of them, writing. Uh, so those are window of opportunity. I don't think it's a good idea to give chemotherapy in an adjuvant setting.
1: Mm-hmm. And Duke
2: just published a paper, I think, that
1: mm-hmm.
2: doesn't have great results for that.
1: Yes, I, I saw that, yeah.
2: So, so what, what I tell patients about mm-hmm. the this, this surgery
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, is that surgery is always part of multimodality. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work if there's no modality. Mm-hmm. If they have very early disease and they're good function. They're a candidate for surgery followed by chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. If they have moderately advanced, locally advanced disease, like we discussed lymph nodes or chest bone mm-hmm. moment, I recommend neoadjuvant therapies, restaging potential surgery. Mm-hmm. And then if they have disseminated disease, then they need immunotherapy or, or chemotherapy
1: mm-hmm. and not
2: surgery and maybe palliation. That's how I classify things without getting into
1: Okay, and then, um, you know, when when you do the uh, interoperative chemotherapy, um, do you have problems then with scar tissue and being able to go back in for a local recurrence?
2: No, because the local recurrence, uh, uh, so let me stop. There's Mm -hmm. always scar tissue after a pleurectomy, if you do it correctly, because Mm -hmm. you take out both the visceral and parietal pleura. So the mm-hmm. lung always has little holes that you do the best to close and then it's always stuck to the chest wall.
3: Mm-hmm. And it's
2: not just mesothelioma, it's other cancers. There's always mm-hmm. uh, uh So going back into the actual lung or chest inside mm-hmm. is very hard, probably not a good idea. I tried it a couple of times. Not mm-hmm. a good idea for maybe someone better than me can do it. But a lot of the local recurrence are on the surface, mm-hmm. and you can get to the surface. Mm-hmm. And it turns out a lot of local recurrence, and, and I think we put in our papers, and so did the Zurich group, are lower down because some stuff remains just slipped in past the diaphragm. So that mm-hmm. it's on a lower rib cage, which is over, not over the lung, and you can take care of it. You can go in for that, no problem. Thank
3: you.
2: Now, Now, we did. I, I don't know. Have, yeah. you, have you seen our JTO paper? It Just is on, online, but it's not. It's not completely published, but it's online. So the, the thing, if you haven't seen it, you mm-hmm. can look it up. It's on, It's mm-hmm. free online. But mm-hmm. uh, what we worked on for the last twenty years is to define uh, who's a candidate.
1: Yes, I saw that.
2: Yeah. You saw that. You like? Mm-hmm. Did you? Did you go on the website and play with? I did. I did. Yeah. Cool, isn't it?
1: Very, it's, you know, this is what we need to do.
2: Yes. Need to understand. For the U.S. government and the NCI, we're doing stuff that's relevant. Mm-hmm. So, so, no, I mean, it's a good thing. So, mm-hmm. so, so basically the, the fundamental issue for me with mesothelioma has been that we haven't been able to appropriately stage it preoperatively.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and, and we put people on clinical trials and we're comparing apples to oranges and not, and then we get we're surprised that we get fruit salad as the result. And 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 I think that we have to use the biology and all the tools that we have in a simple way to say, this is your risk group, this is your risk group, this is your risk group,
3: mm-hmm. this
2: is your risk of having surgery in terms of this is your predicted survival. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so this is good for the doctors is good for the patients, but it's also good for clinical trials. Because mm-hmm. if we say, okay, we can do this test on you, looking at your CAT scan blood test, this is your risk group, that if you put patients and stratify them by that, then you can easily get meaningful results because that's what we've done in every other cancer.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I, I mean, I mean, why should mesothelial be different than other cancers?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, so my hope is that this will it's simple enough to enable everything, because mm-hmm. what I did can be, frankly, reproduced by anybody mm-hmm. who paying, you know.
1: And I think it's, you know, it's important for, for all trial design now, you know, moving forward that we're getting the right people into that right trial, you know, being not being able to stage appropriately or, you know, some of the things that we used to describe in the past. It was always the high white count this or that, but we weren't really looking at all of it in total. And I think what you've done now is you're looking at the entire picture and teasing out what's important, you know, in these cohorts. Um, So congratulations again, you know, with with a nice paper and moving this field forward. So where do you see the future now with mesothelioma in terms of surgery? Um, I'm sure, you know, also this impacts it greatly because you've just recently delved into so much of the data.
2: So a couple of things, first of all, there's immunotherapy we didn't talk about. Immunotherapy helps a subset of patients, but when it helps, it's amazing.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. we think we have a predictive signature for immunotherapy, Mm -hmm. but we haven't published it yet.
3: Okay. Mm -hmm.
2: So, um, and we have a number of patients that benefit from it. So, so I think that there are like four things. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Number one, they, they're, when I, let me tell you what I tell patients. Uh, If they're early stage and it's really key, because mm-hmm. when we started operating, we um, were operating in when they're early stage and they're good candidates. Then I say, look, uh, the reason to do surgery, and he, boy, you'll have to have chemotherapy after that, is to get a 25% chance or 23% chance at five-year survival. Mm-hmm. That's the reason to do surgery.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Because I'm not comfortable yet that there's any data that Mm -hmm. chemotherapy or immune therapy reliably gets you to Mm -hmm. those kind of numbers. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Hopefully they will, but they don't. Mm -hmm. And they don't do that in lung cancer either Mm -hmm. or in any cancer. They help. They're great, but they're Mm -hmm. not the panacea. So, and then I say that 75% of you, 100% of you have a chance of some recurrence and we can manage the recurrence in various ways, be it chemotherapy, immunotherapy, Mm reoperations, various ablations. So so it doesn't have to be for everybody a death sentence. Mm -hmm. It has been a death sentence for a long time, and and that permeates. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And yes, it's true. Some people who present with metastatic disease or advanced disease will not do well. And even some people who presents with earlier disease will not do well, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: but that's not everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's completely, if someone presents with stage four lung cancer, they're not going to do well either. Mm -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So, so it's like, yeah, we have to have solutions for various parts. So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is the biology. Mm -hmm. I think I'm hoping from looking at preliminary results and I don't want to Raise anybody's hopes up. We're we've done some massive explorations recently that are going to be in manuscript form next year, mm-hmm. or this this year or next. Uh, but we may be able to ping pong mesothelioma from epithelial to sarcoma or sarcoma to mesothelioma, that kind of stuff.
3: Mm-hmm. And that's cool mm-hmm.
2: because. Mm-hmm. So now we have to independently come up with solutions
3: mm-hmm. for
2: epithelioids, sarcomatoids, et cetera. And then when we have the solutions
3: <clears throat>
2: for the best solutions, then we put, push the cancer to one side or the other and then treat it. You see what I'm saying?
1: I understand. It's what a saying. novel concept, mm-hmm.
2: but it's cool. And maybe it seems to, there are hints that that might mm-hmm. be possible.
1: I was just recently reading a paper from your institution that led me to be start to think in that direction as well.
2: Now, good. We're seeing this Mm -hmm. uh, in the lab. And then, and then, so the next question is, so how you ping pong people and how you play with the immune system is Mm -hmm. independent and separate with how you Mm -hmm. treat Mm -hmm. the buckets. And that's Mm -hmm. important to understand. So, uh, what, we're, what I'm thinking about, so we published a couple of papers on uh, things to do with NF2 mutations and other mutations.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and I believe that there are metabolic solutions to certain subsets mm-hmm. of patients based on genetics. Mm-hmm. And it's not gonna be tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which mm-hmm. the oncology world is enamored with because they work nicely, but they're limited. So not everything is a tyrosine type, unfortunately.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But there are metabolic ways that we can treat patients.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: we are identified several types. And mm-hmm. now it's the slugging, uh, the slug to get get it to the patients. So mm-hmm. that's our hope. It takes mm-hmm. too long, unfortunately.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But, but so much that goes in. Mm-hmm. we have paths forward now that we didn't have five years ago, ten years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. So, which is, I mean, I I
1: think, you know, the statistics are being rewritten daily, uh, you know, with all these new advances and, you know, patients who we would have said there's no chance, many of them today are, you know, living good lives, you know, some of them with mesothelioma and some of them with it significantly knocked down. So it's always that eye on the future and, you know, turning to researchers like yourself and, you know, the major institutions who, not only have clinical programs, but research interests that are strong, you know, they're strong for mesothelioma. So Dr. Bueno, is there anything that you'd like to bring up that I did not ask um, before we conclude the interview?
2: A couple of things. So number mm-hmm. one, I want to emphasize.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: 23% of mesothelioma patients with aggressive treatment are alive mm-hmm. on fibers.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now that's better than pancreatic cancer.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So maybe that means that we can start talking about cures Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. and
2: we can stop saying that it's all palliation. It's all partial resection. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Because I think that does harms to patients because Mm -hmm. it lets people do sub, substandard surgery. Mm -hmm. It lets people tell people that you're hopeless. I mean, I actually, part of my education is when you go to another doctor or to another state, if you have a head cold, they'll tell you that you're dying from a static mesothelioma. Mm-hmm. And, and so call me some, maybe you are, but there's a good chance you're not. So, so, so we, we need, our problem is a public relation problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yes, it's a bad cancer, but we're bad. Yeah. And we actually have, that's why I suggested that paper that we have mm-hmm. 276 patients who lived longer than five years in the world. Oh, well, that's not a large number but it ain't zero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm not purporting that we can cure everybody, but I'm just saying some people do well and it's a real number. It's not a pretend mm-hmm. And I'm challenging the medical oncologist to identify those patients that they might have that, and count them and, and mm-hmm. that, that survive longer.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's number one. Number two, I want to make the point that staging is critical. Uh, in mesothelioma, and the mesothelioma is being maltreated by the world for not insisting on accurate staging before treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the third thing is is there are centers around the country and around the world who specialize in this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, both physicians and healthcare providers and patients need to at least know about it. We don't always succeed. Uh, we don't cure everybody, but we try harder and we have better outcomes.
1: Thank you. And, you know, I think this message of hope also, um, you know, prevents patients from going out seeking those, you know, phony baloney cures and those crazy diets and those pills and, you know, wasting precious resources um, because they've been so turned off by the medical profession. So, I think, you know, uh, to get out of bed in the morning, you have to have hope. And if you can't instill hope in your patient, then you've you've failed. So I think what you've had to say today is very important and very impactful, um, particularly for those who may be listening that are newly diagnosed to know that, you know, you will have a tomorrow and that, you know, we're all working together to try to do the best for you. So, Dr. Bueno, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Going to look for the new publications coming out, and we'll probably circle back with you.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. What's up on the horizon?
1: Thank you. you.
3: Stay safe and keep doing the great work.
1: Thank you, Dr. Foyno. Take care, then, and good to speak to you.
3: Bye-bye.